quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode 82. Logbook entry, almost died today. <laughs> Captain's Log 2023. <laughs> yes! Oh, man, that was a good one. Well, first of all, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. If you're out there listening to us today as this show hits the streets, we hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hopefully with family and loved ones, if you find yourself on the road, particularly as a pilot, hopefully with a good crew and good friends. Enjoy some time today to reflect on all the good things that you're thankful for in life. I can tell you, I think I speak for Fig when I say we are thankful for you. You make this show so much fun for us to do. So thank you, everybody. That I, I couldn't have said any better myself, brother. Thank you. So, Fig, we got a new division lead this week. We do. El Peloto. Yeah. Let me read uh, what he wrote to us. Hi, Repeat yeah. and Fig. I am loving the shows you guys are churning out. Your shows take me back to the days when I flew with a number of ex-RAF Harrier guys, whom also had a plethora of awesome stories to regale me with as we ran the Bucket and Spade Brigade to and from their holidays between the U.K., and the sunny beaches of Europe. Right As someone who is six foot five, I could never fit in a jet unless it had freight in the back. I accepted my fate that I was not going to fly anything that would make me go ballistic ever. So I might as well fly with an espresso in hand, hence why I now fly self loading freight as a skipper with said espresso in hand on the four engine double decked flying cruise liner that is the A380. It could be worse. Check six. El Piloto. Nice. Yeah, well, let's hope he never goes ballistic in the A380, but... <laughs> right. So, 6-5, we can't help ourselves there, Strecken. That's your new call sign, Strecken. Call sign Strecken, which is German for... <laughs> stretch. <laughs> He's German for stretch. Yeah, thank you, Stretch. Yeah. Thank so you for the, uh, for the support. Indeed. Thank you so much for the support. Been in touch with him. Going to hand carry his bar glasses to his base. Sponsor this week is Robin's Bird Brain Designs, Custom Slate Coasters. It's gift-giving time of year, folks. Get your orders in by December 15th with robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. Custom Slate Coasters, however you like them. She'll work with you to get what you want. A hobby, a squadron, an organization. Get it done. What do you think, Fig? What else should someone do if they want to help us out here? Don't want to throw money at us. Well, they should rate us. They should give us a five-star rating. Not one. You know who you are, too. Yeah, we know who you are, you <laughs> no-good bastard. <laughs> one star. Hey, if you, don't, if you don't want to give us a five-star review, send us an email. Tell us what, what we need to improve on, because we are trainable. That's right. That's right. Hey, you drop you know one what? star on us, we just know what kind of person you are. That's all we're who, saying. Who drops one star and doesn't even give a comment? What a douche. Right? <laughs> hey, share the show. Share the show with your friends. Share. Absolutely. And Fig, speaking of Patreon pilots, we got another one this week. Kale Heckerson, call sign KJ. I met KJ in the lobby of the Hilton in Cambridge, England. I was checking in. He was checking out. He's about to take a C-130 all the way over to Asia. Oh, man. I, I think they're about to land. I met him in uh, September. I think they're about to Whoa. land any day yeah, now. that's about right. <laughs> Dang. Right? So, yeah. yeah, met him, gave him my card and the subscription QR code for the show. So he writes in, says, 
Hey guys, love the show. Met Repeat in Cambridge when we were traveling through and he was the one that told me about it. I'm happy to donate the show because I love hearing all the stories from aviators past and present. I chose tanker aircraft commander status because I currently am active duty marine tanker aircraft commander. Seemed too fitting. Much appreciated, gents. Keep the laughs coming. And he asked he asked if we could give a shout out to his stepfather, Tim, who's an electrician in Fraser, Colorado. And he unfortunately took a spill on his mountain bike and led him to have some some surgery. So he's still on the mend. And to that we say, Tim, we know suffering from an injury is no fun at all, especially when it keeps you sidelined. We wish you a speedy recovery. Speedy recovery, my friend. Thank you. Absolutely. So get back on your mountain bike soon and hope you get a chance to enjoy a little bit of Thanksgiving dinner with family in the meantime. So thank you very much. We got another one we have to acknowledge. And the... This is going to sound weird if you're listening to the show regularly because next week's show is with Chucker, and we talk about Chucker being a triple tanker aircraft commander. And after we finished recording last night, that show, it it popped on us. We now have a quadruple tanker aircraft commander in Chucker. Quadruple. So, quadruple. Wow. Right. I mean, that's just oh, – that is so God. far – First of all, it's humbling, number one, and what, yeah. what, I, I don't even know what to say. Speechless. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, and that doesn't even do it. Even it's do just it inadequate. Justice. So we'll talk more about that, and we'll talk with Chucker, like I say, on next week's show. That's a fun show, but that's next week. So we'll leave it hanging there for now. I think we get on to talk a little bit about Chris, our air cav pilot from the 1980s. Yeah, this a little was bit a of fun theme. interview. Yeah. And the theme reared its ugly head again, Fig. Are you talking about with the wildlife, <laughs> with the cattle, moose and livestock, bear and buffalo? Livestock. Oh my! <laughs> oh my gosh! I know. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a story that I, I, I mean, we both had to get clear clarity on because oh, we had to stop. Go wait a minute. You did what? Oh, yeah, well, you did <laughs> what? Yeah. Then he talks about you know just a. It was a grizzly bear, wasn't it? Yeah, grizzly bear trying to swat a Huey out of the sky. Which made me think King Kong on the Empire State <laughs> Building. That, I mean, that's what I envisioned when he was telling that story. Yeah. He had great stories. He flew air cav, and yeah. he was up in Alaska, way north Alaska. Freezing were, his body parts off. <laughs> yeah, they were there for the uh, big Russian invasion with it never... Yeah. Uh, came, thank the Lord. Oh. However, the flying was incredible. The conditions were absolutely insane, Treacherous. especially in the wintertime, right? <laughs> <laughs> when somebody oh. said, he, he said the crew chief had to take the batteries out and sleep with them at night so they could put them in and they would work. I mean, I don't know. You know, they, they couldn't yeah. leave them in the helicopters because it was tough. No, they'd freeze and then they wouldn't start. Freaking cold, right. So, they had to, so you had to sleep with your batteries, but make sure you weren't sleeping with food, I'm certain, lest the wildlife wander in and say oh, hello. Yeah. I don't you know. I know. What I mean, it, the time went re- really fast, like it always does, with very interesting people. And and, and when yeah. we're done, you're always asking for more. This was a fun episode, so I, I think we've got no choice but to get out of the way. Some army training, sir. About crossing the pond. You don't sit on the damn collective. At night, don't do it. In the world's smallest cockpit, on the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, he's not. No, I'm not.
crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was in a cloud of snow looking through a green NVG toilet paper tube, rolling a little to the left, thinking, what you going to do now, Captain? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> a little scary. That is how all great aviation stories begin, which is so there I was. Welcome. This is Fig coming to you from Denver, Colorado. And where is my cohort tonight? I'm home for one more night, then I've got to go to work. Repeat here in Lee, New Hampshire. And we have with us tonight an air calf pilot from the 1980s era, back when they were throwing money at the Pentagon like it grew on trees. It was a good time to be on active duty. Indeed. So welcome, Chris, one of our listeners, one of our Patreons. We much appreciate it and look forward to chatting with you about all kinds of things, rolling over yes. in the snow yes. and and <laughs> life encounters and everything. But wow. yeah, thanks for the invite. Yeah. Glad to have you. First of all, we're glad, we're glad you're here. Yeah. What, what inspired you to crawl into one of those whirling death traps in the first place? <laughs> uh, <laughs> when did when did you decide you wanted to fly and how'd you get there? I always kind of had an aviation background. My dad was a, a 40-year engineer at Boeing Airplane Company out in Seattle. I heard of him. That, he, uh, they still make airplanes, don't they? Yeah, too. He actually he designed the metal structure for the landing gear of the 747. And I remember as a special deal for him, we got to go to the control tower when it did its first landing at Boeing Field back in like 1969. Whoa, wow. so got to see that whole thing, which obviously, if you're going to like aviation, that's that's going to be a top of the list deal to, to keep you interested. Had a neighbor whose uh, dad had an airplane, had an old V-tail Bonanza that we used to go out in. And uh, so the itch to fly was always kind of there. I don't think it finally solidified until I was at West Point and uh, started looking at different branches. And like, why go infantry or something else where you got to carry your 110 pound rucksack on your back versus in the yeah. back. Yeah. Right. So, Put it under your seat. Good stuff. Yeah. So it was, it was a little, little bit of a long journey. I, I, I got, I got into West Point, I guess, for my body instead of my brains. I was a gymnast <laughs> and my skills Yosh. on, skills on gymnastics Yosh. events were much higher than my SAT scores, but it was enough to get me in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't quite graduate high enough in the class to get aviation straight out of the academy. And it was just becoming a branch in the army or the aviation back then. So I started infantry. Okay. Did, did that for, I guess, two years was a training officer at Fort Dix, New Jersey. So I got to be with the uh, drill sergeants all day, which was an absolute blast. Those guys are the best guys ever. Aren't and, they comedians? Uh, They're comedians. Yeah. It was oh my just, gosh. It was just an awesome experience, and finally, finally got orders for flight school and changing branches from infantry to aviation all in the same day. And, oh, uh, that nice. Was, okay, I was back in. I started in May of May of nineteen eighty four at Fort Rucker. Nice, very cool. So, how how'd you wind up selecting West Point? I mean, and did you know you wanted to fly then? And I I, th I thought I wanted to fly and had uh, some. You know, background knowledge, how am I going to get there? Okay. Uh, I didn't have anybody in my family that was in the military. And I think other than a great, great, great grandfather who fought in the Civil War. <laughs> but, I uh, one of those. But, that, yeah. <laughs> but that was it. Still got his discharge paperwork, some brass cab belt buckle, which is kind of cool. 
Wow. That's awesome. But that was it. So I, I started actually getting recruited by both uh, Naval Academy and West Point for gymnastics. And that was the predominant deciding factor. They flew me out. West Point flew me out on a recruiting trip for a weekend. And by the end of the weekend, I was on the airplane flying home. I'm going, if I can get in, that's where I'm going. Army all the way, baby. Yeah. What, so Annapolis lost out because they what? They dropped the ball in the recruiting effort. Yeah, I, uh, the coach was coach was a little little different, and uh, he'd have his recruiting phone calls, and they all kind of started with, "Hey, is it raining out there?" Because I lived in Seattle, and I was like, "Well, that's kind of annoying." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't and he didn't fly me out to Annapolis for a weekend like the West Coast did. Okay, so, that's you know, bullshit. That is bullshit. <laughs> but I want to know. It wasn't I raining. Know I want to know if it was raining. <laughs> how many? So you were there four years at at West Point. Is Correct. that right? Yeah. How? So what was the score? Army Navy. Was it? How many win losses was it while you were there? In football. Yes. In gymnastics. In football. No, football. Football. It was three and a half. We tied okay. three to three my senior year, which we considered a win. What oh, about man. what about in gymnastics? In gymnastics, we were three and one. We had an eight-year straight streak, and we lost it and gave it up my senior year, which was kind of a oh. bad memory. But that's the way yeah. it goes. Hey, it was, all right. it was good while it lasted. Good luck. We're yeah. all counting on you. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure at all. <laughs> it would have been four and zero. Oh, would have been good. Three and one would have been back. good. There you go. Right. So, what was your main event in gymnastics? Did all six events. My best event was uh, vaulting and high bar were the two best events. Holy shit. Man. This is, you know, this is a first. This is a first. We've had Army helicopter aviators on here before. I think you're the first West Pointer. Is that right? Repeat. First West Pointer. Yeah. For some reason, I think we had one other, but I don't (laughs) recall who it was. Well, okay. Sorry. You might not be the first West Pointer, but you are definitely the first gymnast. Yes. Collegiate yes. gymnast, very first. Yeah, so we actually had a we had a group of about six of us that were all on the team over the four years I was there that were all at Fort Rucker at the same time, either as a student or as an IP. And we used to get together in the O Club, or or we'd get together at the O Club pool on Saturdays and kind of do crazy stuff off the diving boards that used to <laughs> used to get us free drinks where people dare us to do oh, different yeah. things. And oh, so, did you do like the triple yeah. indie or whatever from? Uh... Yeah, we'd, yeah, somebody'd get up and they'd do a single flip, and the next guy up had to do something a little better. So you had to add a flip or a twist or something. And by the time you were the fifth guy up, you were in trouble. You know, you, it was going to hurt when you landed, most likely. And it, it was it was a good time because there was plenty of beer flowing at the O Club back in those days, right? As, as it should be in military yes. flight school, right? Yes. Hey, I, I got a real quick admin note here. Big big uh, big Beaver sixty nine. Says, uh, as as a matter of fact, Chris is our first West Point right. uh, graduate, and that's from Sticks. And, so he he our, has an eidetic memory. So <laughs> yeah, he is our first West Point graduate, and he is a acrobat as opposed to an aerobat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sticks. yeah. Upside down in a helicopter is not a good place to be most of the time. Well, right. Uh, yeah, I hope we'll, let's let's talk about that. So, yeah. uh, you 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 Fort Rucker, you. Whoa, what what kind of helicopters you could train in Fort Rucker back back uh, in the eighties? There were several. Primary was an old TH fifty five, which was a Hughes two sixty nine piston driven two seater. 
So you do about 60 hours in that for primary. Yeah. Okay. And then you did a transition course into the UH-1 Huey. Okay. And that was about 24 hours. And after that, we did instrument training in the Huey. First part of that was basic instruments in the simulator. And then uh, you'd go out in the aircraft to finish that up. And then you broke off either into a, they called a lift track or a scout track. So the lift track was learning how to carry troops around in a Huey or maybe transition to a Blackhawk after you graduated. Or or something. Yep. And then the scout track was in OH-58s, which I went to. And you'd learn all the different air cavalry type tactics and skills and things like that. So you did a a quick transition course in the OH-58. And then you'd go out and learn all the tactics and then finish off with uh, night vision goggles at the very end. Okay. So in, in in 1984 was night vision goggles was that the leading edge of night vision goggle technology? It, it was pretty close. It, the very first ones were they had full full face goggles to where you couldn't really look out underneath them, which caused a oh. lot of vertigo problems oh. and things. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Back back then the NVGs had a visual acuity of 2050. It was like looking through a green toilet paper tube. Right, and depth, yeah. per, depth perception was accurate between 50 feet and 500 feet, which doesn't do you a heck of a lot of good when you're no. trying to learn how to hover. You know, they say, okay, I <laughs> get up to three feet. Okay, I got it at three feet. And they go, really? I'm turning the landing light. Look down at the bottom. Yeah. And you'd be up at 10 or 15 feet. So. Okay. Okay. And then, so, that, so let were, me back they, up. They were not good, but it was better than nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Better than nothing. But so let me uh, let me back up a little bit and ask you a, a quick question about the TH fifty five. You said it had a radial engine in it, and I don't know whether this or no. You said it had a piston engine in it. Piston I'm engine. assuming it was a radial engine. Yes. Okay. Uh, was that horizontally mounted or vertically, or how did, how did that it was, work? It was horizontal, and okay. the drive shaft came out the back, and there were I think three different uh, belts. That uh, drove the different gears that went up into the transmission for the for the rotor system. Okay. This sounds horrible. Or I can remember back. That was, that was a long time ago, but uh, I'm picturing yeah. it in my mind because that was part of the pre-flight. You had to you had to check all those rubber bands to make sure that they weren't frayed or coming off. Right, because if any one of those rubber bands snapped during flight, it sounds like you were done. Don't you doing an auto rotation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, we, we've heard about these auto rotations. <laughs> Which were kind of fun. Uh, well, I, you know. If they were controlled, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, is this great. <laughs> so, okay. So how long did it take to get your head around hovering and auto rotation and all that kind of stuff? We hear different amounts of time. Apparently, one of our guests, Lawman, who who just hopped in a helicopter and did it when they said do it. But, you know, he flew Blue Angels, so. <laughs> well, man's not your average. He is not your average pilot, no. His, the, his bar is up here. We all operate down here. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the hardest hardest part was learning how to hover. And at the time, we had one instructor pilot to two students, and you'd have one student go out with the IP, and you'd, you'd fly out to a stage field somewhere, and the other student would take a bus out. You'd fly for two hours, and then the guy who took the bus would switch out and fly. But the guys that were on the bus, you'd go out to the stage field, and you'd watch the hover field, which is where they were teaching people how to how to hover. You know, fly, flying, doing approaches, turns, straight and level—that's pretty easy. But trying to get a trying to get the hang of hovering was 
was a bit rough. And depending on how sadistic your instructor pilot was, <laughs> was adding to the comedy of what would happen while you were watching out at the stage field to your buddies trying to learn how to hover. Right. And right. you'd see, you'd see somebody kind of flat straight and then all of a sudden, Whoa, whoa, and then boom, yeah. they oh, come yeah. back to level, which you knew the IP was grabbing the control again. I was lucky. I had, I had a great instructor and I'd say, put your feet on the pedals. Keep us, keep us pointed straight down the stage field, down the, down the line. And once you got hold of that, he'd give you the collective, say, keep us at three feet. Okay. Once you got the hang of that, then he'd say, okay, grab the cyclic, keep us over this spot. And then he'd made, he'd manage all the other controls. Then he'd give you sets at two at a time. And when you got those straight, then he gave you all three and it was boom. So I think the syllabus called for, you were supposed to, you were supposed to do a solo, I think by the 12th hour, okay. if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So the instructor would get out and you'd go around three times and come back and land, pick him up if everything went okay. And then, then off you'd go to the next set of syllabus. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, but obviously you had to hover by the time you soloed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you had, to, you had to pick it up off the uh, off the runway where they where they parked and started to hover and ask okay. radio radio control tower for permission to take off and you're hovering that okay. whole time and then off you go. Yeah, and so did it just click for you, or did it did it come slowly? Or, I, it I mean, pretty, it sounds like this it, guy had a great pretty, technique to teach. Yeah, you. it was it was pretty quick. Yeah, that's I was I I did pretty well all the way through. I was I was at or near the top of the class pretty much all the way through. And I think a lot of that came natural, maybe from some of the coordination from gymnastics, who knows what, but there it was go. also, I had some, I had some great IPs. I did, I did not have a bad IP all the way through. You'd get guys that, you know, were yellers and screamers. And I had guys that were just wanted to teach you how to fly the best you could fly. And nice. uh, really lucked out that way, especially from the very beginning. You know, the guy said, you make sure and go home and study your butt off on all the emergency procedures and limitations. You come back in and, you have those set the next day and life is going to be good for you. And then you go out nice. to the hover pad where, it, you know, Fort Rucker, Alabama, when it was a hundred degrees during the middle of the summer and you'd get in that big greenhouse, just saying, you know, stop the pre-flight checks. Just let us get this big fan going and cool this thing down. But, right. Uh, it, was, it was an adventure. Okay. I got, I got a question for you, Chris. Instructor pilots at Fort Rucker predominantly warrant officers or were they commissioned or, you know, were they regular officers or, or uh, mixed bag? What, what, um, what say you? It, it depends on the, uh, the segment of training. So the uh, first, first segment on the TH 55s was all contracted out to civilians. So I looked out, had, had a great civilian guy who was actually retired. Oh six that, that taught me how to fly. And nice. then on the Huey transition, all those were military, and most of those were warrant officers. I, think I had a I had a CW three for my Huey transition, and then instruments. You flip back again to civilian, and then we went into when you split off. When I went to OH fifty eights, from then on, through the end of flight school, I was I was all military, and okay. had a W three, and then I think an NVGs. I I had a captain who was the he was the commander of the, the training squadron or the training group that we had. So, but that was nice. all military at the okay. end. So it was kind of a split back and forth between civilian and military. Well, that's cool. I, I, I really had no idea. In about 1984, I was getting really rushed hard 
by an army recruiter because I or I already was in college and I had a private pilot's license. And he was like, "You need to, you need to be a warrant officer. You need to go to. We can send you to Fort Rucker tomorrow." You know, we could have ended up there about the same time. But I'm I was just always curious about that. Thank yeah, you. no, that sounds awesome. And then so a one, time. couple other questions <laughs> about flight school. Stick said, hey, ask about pulling the collective and drooping NR, which is, I'm assuming, your main rotor rotation speed. And I don't know what I'm supposed to ask about that, except I imagine if you pull the collective <laughs> too hard, you're changing your blade angle and, and, and screwing your NR up, and you're going to come out of the sky, right? Yeah, most of that was, if, if you lost RPM, it was either pulled the collective too hard or too much, and it would drain energy off of the engine, or it could have been an auto rotation where the they'd turn, put the engine to idle and you'd end up coming down with just the all the air coming up through the fan. And if you pulled too much collective, you'd, you'd lose that inertia on the rotor speed of the of the rotor blades. And it comes okay. down. So there, there were a couple of different ways. There, there were other ones, if, especially on the TH55 in primary, you had a separate throttle that was hooked to the collective. Once you got oh, okay. to the Huey and the OH58, the RPM was all managed inside the system so you didn't have to worry about it but on the the th55 you also had to manage the the throttle so if you didn't have enough rpm pulled in and you started pulling collective it'd droop and you wouldn't have enough and and you kind of bang down a little harder than you were supposed to <laughs> whoops <laughs> it's like letting your getting behind the power curve on your angle yeah. of attack it sounds like you know yeah you know, a lot of a lot of stuff going on there a lot of moving parts, man. You, I don't know how you Hilo guys learn to spin all those plates at the same time. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we as Chris, we normally ask, oh, so in flight school, did you ever have your hand on the ejection seat handle? But so that really didn't count. So in flight school, no. did you ever, uh, did you ever let go of the collective? <laughs> I mean, did you ever, did, did you ever have to no shit auto rotate because something happened or uh, did you? I know a helicopter guys don't really call them crashes. <laughs> they just call them un, unscheduled landings. Yeah. Did you no, I, I never, I never had an engine failure, but I did have an interesting event, which yeah. was, which was one of those logbook entries of almost died today. And nice, those are so always they good. Said, as I said before, we'd have you'd have an instructor and you'd have two student pilots. And when we went through the Huey transition course, it was a twenty-four hour uh, segment, and you'd go fly two hours, and you'd be in the right seat. Instructor pilot would be in the left seat. And whoever the student pilot was, be back in the jump seat, and off you'd go. So anyway, my my stick buddy through the Huey transition course, course which was 24 hours of time, was Lieutenant Labidi Tarek from Tunisian Air Force. He was part of the Allied Exchange Program, where foreign countries that didn't have large enough training programs to train their own pilots would send them over to the U.S. and pay us pay us millions of dollars to let them go through training. No, 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 no. I, I don't think you got paid millions of dollars to go through training with him. I, I could be wrong. I, I did not. Uncle Sam did. Uncle That's Sam right. Got, Uncle Sam paid Uncle paid Sam millions, millions of dollars. And, yes, and, and but made me pay for it with sweat, and I thought I was going to die about every day when he was at the controls. It was by far the worst pilot I've ever flown with in my life. And part of the syllabus, so it was 24 hours total, and by the 18th hour, you were supposed to do what they called a supervised solo. So the instructor pilot would get out. The guy in the jump seat, who was the other student, would get up into the co-pilot seat, 
and you'd go and you'd do three traffic patterns around the stage field. The stage field had like five mini runways, and okay. they had a control tower where they were training students that were going to be controllers in the army. Oh, so we were all oh, learning and oh, trying to kill oh, each other. Along the- so you've got air traffic <laughs> yes. controllers, students, Absolutely. and pilot students? Yeah, all together in the same, oh, same hold on. Here space. it comes. This, hey, Fig, what this, could possibly go wrong? No, I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Is this the Allah will save us? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, okay, yes. okay. Okay, keep, keep yes. please, please continue. Yes, yeah. so I think I did I did my supervised solo about hour 14 or so. I did my three traffic patterns. Everything's good. So we got to the, like, the 17th, 18th, two-hour training block, and I'm thinking, man, Labidi's got to do this supervised solo today or he's he's going to get set back a class, and uh, which nobody wanted to do. And uh, right at the end of the, the two hours, instructor pilot said, all right, Lieutenant Tarek, it's time for your supervised solo. Go ahead and park over here on the hover pad and put it at flight idle. So he did that. And instructor pilot said, all right, let's remember the rules here. You do three traffic patterns, either normal approach or steep approach. Lieutenant Adams, you're only allowed to grab the controls in the case of an emergency. And everybody understand the rules. And I'm like, yes, sir. Yeah, no problem. So I get out the back uh, left of the aircraft, and instructor pilot's crawling out the, the left seat. He unplugs his mic cord, and as soon as he does that, he grabs the side of my helmet, pulls it out, yells up into my headset, underneath my in headset, so I can hear him, saying, <laughs> don't be afraid to grab the controls if you feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, wait, wait, you just told me not to grab the controls. I got like a total of 70 hours of flight time now, right? So like, oh, my God. And here this guy is. He scares the crap out of me every flight period. I'm going, I'm going to die. So off we go. And the the first traffic pattern, it wasn't pretty, but it wasn't scary. You know, he was a little high, a little low, a little fast, a little slow. He had these big bulging eyes, and he'd, he'd just be bouncing like this and didn't have a cross scan at all. And he'd just be like this. And, and so we did the first one. I'm like, oh, thank God, one down, two to go. And the second one, we go downwind, and we're turning we're turning base. And I, I still remember the tail number of this aircraft because he goes, oh, it's 6-7 November, right base, normal approach. Roger, 6-7 November, cleared approach and lane three. Roger, approach in lane three. So he turns, we're on, a, we're on lane three. And I think he got approach end and departure and screwed up maybe with his English oh, or whatever. Man. But there were there were two other Hueys that had already landed and were hover taxiing down to the other end so they could go again. So I think he was thinking of maybe flying over the top of them, which wouldn't have been a good thing either. either. So I said, the BD are getting a little steep for a normal approach. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, you got to land right there. Okay, I do steep approach. So we start dropping. He bottoms out the collective. We start dropping like a bag of bricks. And I'm like, oh boy. we're either banging it on the concrete or we're torching the engine at the bottom, neither one of which I want on Chris's records. So I thought about it a second. I said, well, he told me I could grab the controls. So I, I grabbed the controls. Tower lane three, go around. 6, 7 November. Roger, all, all other traffic, please hold. And meanwhile, Lieutenant Tarek's fighting me on the controls. Mr. No. H, I only grab controls in case of an emergency. And I said, we're going to crash at the bottom. You're, we're dropping like a bag of bricks. Let go of the controls now. 
And he said, it's okay. Allah will save us. <laughs> and I said, no, me and you got a different main man upstairs, and mine's telling me to take the controls. Let's go now. <laughs> so, so I went around, did the, did the traffic pattern, came around, landed, went over to the hover pad, swapped out with the IP. We went back to the main airfield because it was at the end of the training period. Shut the aircraft down and IP said, all right, Lieutenant Tarek, why don't, why don't you take the survival vest back to base ops and Lieutenant Adams and I'll do the post-flight inspection. So as soon as he was out of earshot, he says, what happened? So I told him the story and he's, he's laughing his balls off and just like, oh. I, to, I told you to be okay. And I'm like, man, why'd you do that? He goes, cause I know why'd you, you handle it. To me? Like, <laughs> no, I wasn't what I signed up for. I want like 200 hours before I play IP. Yeah. You don't right. put a so, student pilot oh. with 70 hours total time. Yeah. I, I just don't get it. I get that you need oh, two man. crew members in a helicopter, but to put two students together yeah. and count and <laughs> counting on one to one. save the other. Especially <laughs> one that wasn't really competent. Yeah. No. Well, see, Allah did save him. He put you in that seat that he day. So. <laughs> I, I, I think we have a, I think we have a good title for this episode because I, I don't know. That's that's pretty damn good. Well, that that's good. I like I like logbook entry. Almost died today. <laughs> and I do. And I, I like that one too. Yeah. I, I, Holy I, shit! I I got four or five of those that are in there. <laughs> It was funny. I lost really? my, I lost my logbook for it must have been five or six years, and I ended up finding it in a box that I had set away in the basement somewhere. And when I finally pulled it out, I was like, "Oh, cool! I I, I still got it," and was showing it to my boys. And they're like, "Dad, what does that entry almost died tonight mean?" <laughs> so it'd be a good story to tell the kids. And they, "Oh man, that's crazy, Dad!" And I, like, "Yeah, it was, it was pretty stupid." Holy cow. So Sticks said the Navy did that, too, that they had to go with another student. So apparently Sticks was the weak one because they put him in with another Marine student. So, you know, <laughs> busting your chops, because we can. <laughs> if they put Coast Guard and Marine guys together, that's good. It's when you start right? putting Coast Guard and Marine guys with the Navy guys, you know that the, you know, yeah. where the weak spot is. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they sent Lieutenant Tarek back a class since since he didn't do his uh, complete his supervised solo, and I still got to see him every once in a while because we had a we had a townhouse outside of Post because we we didn't have Post housing, and they the Arab Middle Eastern group of the Allied Exchange Program had a party place that ended up being right next to us. So, you know, they weren't supposed to drink or carouse or any of that stuff, but that all happened at the place right next to us. Well, that's within sight of Mecca or something, I think, but I don't know. Weird. I don't know those rules, but it's something like that. So, no, I don't know. No kidding. It's it's funny how that works. I know. So, so out of flight, out of flight school. Yeah. Where'd you go? First post. Yeah. I went to Fort Wainwright, Alaska, up in beautiful Fairbanks. Okay. Which which I got to in I guess it was March of eighty five, and was stationed in E Troop First Air Cav, which was a scout troop that had OH fifty eights, Cobras, Hueys, and an infantry blues platoon that that would go out and do cavalry type maneuvers and protect the interior defense of the state of Alaska from the communist horde coming across the Bering Strait in case that happened. So uh, that was right. that was our mission and learn how to train in the cold weather in case that was ever needed. 
Well, in Alaska it is. Well, fair, <laughs> well in, in Fairbanks, Alaska, it's it's colder in the well digger's ass in the wintertime. I mean, really cold, but it's not yeah, it's it's dry, but it's cold, right? Yeah. It's cold. You know, Every, I think every way you can really kill yourself in an aircraft, especially a helicopter, you you can get into about every flight up there. So great place to learn how to really fly out of flight school. Yeah. So did you have to do any cold weather survival training or anything like that before you went up there to get based up there? Uh, or? No, it was it was when you got up there. Okay. If you were a pilot, you had to go to the Air Force Cool School, which was okay. at Ielson Air Force Base, which was about 10 miles down the street. And it was two and a half days of classroom, learning about uh, how to survive. And then they'd take you out on a bus to the training area where you'd get out at noon on Wednesday and you were out in the cold until noon on Friday. So that was two and a half and, years later? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I, I think the warmest it was for the 48 hours I was out there was uh, 25 below. Oh, my gosh. So it wasn't the coldest I'd ever been while I was up there, but... For 48 hours with nothing else protecting you other than a community igloo, which you slept in the first night. Okay. Uh, and then you, the second day, you spent all day building your own snow cave slash igloo to sleep in by yourself the second night. Right. And uh, meanwhile, you're trying to catch some rabbits or something to eat because all they gave you was a tiny little Air Force survival meal, which had a couple cornflake bars and a pouch of coffee and a candy bar. So, nice. so my group, we, we didn't catch any rabbits. We, we put snares out and uh, the rabbits, I think were pretty smart up there. They get a different crew every week that was learning and there'd be tracks going right up <laughs> through there. And you're like, how'd they get through that? Man, we had that sucker nailed. <laughs> uh, he's laughing rabbit. at you too. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're lucky yeah. the rabbits didn't pin a note to your snare going, Hey, <laughs> Nice Deep try, breeze. a-hole. This was <laughs> wide open. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. So I, one of the graduation certificates I have on my on my wall in my office is is from Cool School. So nice. Uh, worth. So, that was a sacrifice worth putting it up on the, inside the wall there. How how do mechanical things operate at twenty five below zero? T- tell me what 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 you have to do to get mechanical things to work. Yeah, they they had special oil that that would work down to I think it was like 70, 80 below. The biggest thing that that we encountered is all of our field exercises were from like October to April. And so it was out in the right. cold and we'd sleep in a 10-man arctic tent. So this tent was big enough you, you put five cots in it so you'd have have five pilots in each one and then we had two crew chief tents and there was a Yukon stove in the middle of it that was you know probably two feet long and eight inches square and we'd we'd rig up an old oil can to a tree next to the tent and you'd tap JP4 from the helicopters down (laughs) into the Yukon stove and it'd keep it nice and toasty 70 degrees the only safety concern on that was it asphyxiation jp4 jp4 didn't burn real cleanly if it wasn't <laughs> going through a jet engine and, and it would produce a lot of soot and so to to fix that you'd get an m16 blank and about every eight hours you'd throw an m16 blank inside the the yukon stove you squeeze it down underneath the burner plate and okay. when that would cook off if you were standing outside you'd see this big cloud of soot go 
flying up through the top of the top of it was the chimney your, coming up the top. It was your it was your chimney. Yeah, sweep. yeah. Yes. So beautiful. So to go back to the question on the aircraft, the, the crew chiefs would take the battery out every night when we weren't flying, and they'd stick that inside the tent and keep the battery warm. Oh so we go out and, and we do we do a pre-flight. They'd put the battery in, and uh, the next check was you'd grab the throttle. And if the throttle opened and closed, you were good to go. If it didn't, it mean the fuel control was frozen shut. So they had these big Herman Nelson heaters, you know, like the big elephant trunk for, that would blow hot air. And they'd stick that right over the fuel control until you could move the throttle. And once you could move the throttle, clear, and <laughs> started it up and off you'd go. And they flew great when it, when it was that cold. Those molecules of the air were put together. You never had to worry about over-temping or over-torquing, but. Did you have to preheat? Preheat? Uh, just just if you if the fuel control was frozen, if, you know, if the throttle wouldn't open and shut, which was part of the before our engine start, you had to bring the Herman Nelson heaters over and blow it. Other than okay. that, other than that, it was okay. good. And then you'd let it you'd let it uh, start and run up for a couple three minutes, and uh, same thing when it shut down, you'd let it shut down slowly. That's a whole That's another special set of procedures. Yeah, and then uh, hot, re- hot refueling was always an adventure too. When you had that big fan going, and it was forty below out, and with the wind chill, it was it was colder. And if you had to be stuck, the the guy on the right seat that had to do the fire extinguisher and fire guard while that air's blowing and do a hot refuel that that was that was a fun adventure too. That's kind of a oxymoron turn in Fairbanks, Alaska, in the winter. Yes, hot refuel. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I think it was the term of running while the engine was high. So, yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Oh, well, I get. I get it. But oh, yeah. it's just like, oh, okay. Holy shit. Wow. Let's see. I'm oh. looking through some of your. I'm looking through some of your show notes here because. So so is, is this a story from when you were in? Oh yeah, when you were in fair. Yeah, it must be two army pilots ordered to shut down aircraft by two. Oh yeah, that was Air that Force was special police. That was my that was my first and last introduction of landing on an Air Force base. Why, why are you last? Because you, you I, just, I just never said, went there again. Never had to do that again. Thank goodness. But uh, <laughs> we so we were out on a field problem. It was a two week long FTX and. To be able to refuel out in the woods, they bring in this big 10,000-gallon blivet, a big big tank of JP4. And they'd come and they'd put, put the blivet out, and then they'd bring trucks in and fill the whole thing up. And before you would use it, we had to make sure that there was no, no debris or anything else that would come in and from the truck into the blivet or whatever. So we had to check it out at a lab. And the closest lab was at Ileson from where we were at. So we took two bottles that we took a little sample out of the blivet. And I flew with, I was the S1 at the time, got the S4 and the two of us, two of us flew in. This was like a week into this field exercise. This was our second, second one that we had done. And it was a good deal because we got to go back in and sit where it was warm for a couple hours while they did the testing and get some real food. So he went in, parked the aircraft, went in, dropped off the fuel sample and got done. They came out and they said, here's your paperwork. Everything's good. We said, okay. And we had been on a a field flight plan 
a tactical flight plan to fly okay. into Eielson. So we didn't, we didn't file with the FAA or anybody else. It was just all tactical. Called the control tower when we came in. Hey, we're on tactical flight plan. Where do you want us to park? They told us. We parked. Got the fuel all done. Went back through base ops. Talked to the operations scheduler. there. <clears throat> said, hey, are we good to go? We, we're still on this tactical flight plan, right? We don't have to do anything special. No, you're all good. Just, you know, talk to the tower when you're ready to go. Like, okay. Okay. So off we went. We Two of us got, got in the aircraft, started it up. And we were just about ready to call the tower to do a takeoff from where we were parked. Right. And uh, this SP security police Jeep came flying up with its lights going, <laughs> stopped in front of us. These two guys jumped out and they're you know, going like this. And I'm going, what, what? And right. so they're giving they, the cut. They're giving they you the cut sign. Shut, yeah, shut they, it down. Yeah. They didn't find this amusing or whatever, which led to M16s being pointed at us along with shut down. And I turned to my buddy and I, I, I think we screwed something up. I don't know, but we got to, we better shut down because we got M16s pointed at us. So you got two captains sitting in having M16s pointed at us by two enlisted E2s and on. This, this blows not, my mind. Something's Deadly not force. right here. Something's not yeah. right here. So by the time it got shut down, we got out and we're like, hey, what's going on? Get down on the ground. So they, they had these two captains face down uh, on the tarmac when it's 20 below zero out. Going, oh, my gosh. What, what, what is wrong here? So they said, you didn't call the tower. And I said, we weren't ready to take off. Yeah. Well, you got to you got to you got to call the control tower on an air force base before you're allowed to start your engine. Oh and my I go, well, why didn't, why didn't they tell us that when we were in base ops? Right. I said, you know, <laughs> army, army base, you you call ground when you're ready to taxi and you call yeah. the tower when you're ready to take off. You know? <laughs> so we yeah. had to, they escorted us back into base ops. We got our butts chewed by a lieutenant colonel and. All right, sir. Sorry. Now it's a different way of doing business. We we won't let it happen again. Can can we go now? <laughs> so we went out, called the tower before we cranked the uh, aircraft, and they gave us permission, and off we went on our merry way. But still remember two captains being face down with an M sixteen and our necks by two E twos, and I was like, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah kids, interesting. That's they're the probably one. laughing their butts off, but we were not. No, <laughs> well, no, we're not. When not you have even a little bit funny. Yeah, that's not that's not funny at all. Yeah. No, nobody likes that. Yeah, I, sure. I had a, a similar experience crossing a red line in Kunsan, South Korea, yeah. on my walking from a Harrier into base ops, and I'll tell it another time. But yes, I feel your pain. Yeah. <laughs> so, Same type of treatment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm wearing full regalia, G-suit, torso <laughs> harness, carrying my helmet. All I need to do is make sure the flight plan's still in. I crossed a red line, and you would have thought I pulled a pin on a grenade and threw it in the wing commander's office. Right. The <laughs> cavalry game. Yeah. I, I I had a similar one. I actually had – I was at Kadena, and they pulled the, the vehicle, the MP vehicle, in front of my airplane while I was taxiing. <laughs> you know, in retrospect, you know, it, had I known them what I know now, I should have just run the airplane into the damn car. Go, oh, I didn't yeah. see him. You know, 
How, uh, how's that working out for you, smart way. guys? You just damaged a $35 million jet instead uh, of having Tower call and say, stop and hold your position, please. <laughs> that would have worked just as effectively. <laughs> so Wow. Inter-service oh, rivalry, I think we called it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I always refer to that red line on Air Force bases as the Les Nessman line. And for those who aren't old enough, there was a show back in the 70s called WKRP in Cincinnati. And they had a newsman in there whose name was Les Nessman. It was a little AM station in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the, no, it was a sitcom. Yeah, a sitcom. And, and the station didn't have enough money. Yes to give everybody offices. And so Les Nessman, the newsman, was ticked off about it. So he put yellow <laughs> tape on the floor around his desk. And if you walked up to his desk to talk to him, he wouldn't talk to you unless you stood at the place where he had put a dashed line, which was the, the door, door was. and knocked. <laughs> if you crossed his line without knocking, he wouldn't talk to you. So that's why I always called the red line at the Air Force Base a Les Nesman line. <laughs> that's a good. That's, I couldn't have said that any better, bro. That's awesome. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you. you nuts. You led this whole thing with, I believe, this. You were NVGs, snow blowing, right? Yeah, again, what could go wrong? Yeah, so, come, come, what checkpoint. could possibly go wrong? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. So, so could you could you put the cross the T on that story? So several of the very scary things that you could do in a helicopter in Alaska. One was. One was landing on top of snow, especially yeah. if it was just come down because that big fan on top of your aircraft would blow it all over the place. And as soon as it started blowing, if, if you hadn't landed and put it down yet, you lost all reference with the ground. And uh, if you're still in the air at a hover, back in those days without any autopilots to be able to hover, it was never a good thing. Going out flying with night vision goggles, I, I gave I gave a little background on the first wave of NVGs back in the '80s. That you know, 2050 visual acuity, you you thought you were at a five foot hover and you could be at 15 feet because the depth perception was screwed up, and then coming in and doing a an approach into a confined area, so you got this this big cutout field inside of Instead of a forest or a bunch of 200 foot trees all the way around it. Okay. So I'm on my PIC check ride and pilot, uh, and IP, pilot in command. So IP said, all right, let's go out and do, let's go out and land. I can't remember the name of the, the confined area that we go into. And I was like, all right. And another, another quick backstory to put it all together is we had high skid gear on these OH 58s and on the, the bottom of the skids were skis. So it made it a little bit more stable if you were landing on top of snow, especially if it was packed. It, it was just a bigger square inch. So it spread. It's kind of like snow so you spread punch. the weight out a little more. Yeah, it spread the weight oh. out so you wouldn't yeah. punch. So you wouldn't punch through with the with the uh, skids, and the skids were were much higher to give a little bit more space for safety as well. Okay. So, so the proper proper deal on doing blowing snow approach whether it was with NBGs or not, was you'd come in and you'd keep a very small bush off, to, like 45 degrees off to the right, and you'd bring it in, and you'd basically do what they called a slam dunk approach. 
So you come in almost to where you were stopped. You kept the bush off to your right so you knew that where the ground was. And then before this big wave of snow would come off of the rotor blades, the slower you got, it gradually would come around to the front until it engulfed the whole aircraft. And you'd slam yeah. it down on the slam it down on the ground, hopefully with the, the bush still in, in view and hopefully without moving after you did slam dunk it down onto the ground. So you add into the, the frailty of night vision goggles as well and having crappy depth perception and everything else. So in I came, everything was perfect. I, I had the bush off to the right. Everything was good. I slam dunked it and I thought everything was good. And we stopped a little bit more quickly than we normally would. And the next thing I know, my butt's going like there's a roll rate happening and there's emergency procedure in a helicopter called dynamic rollover, which means oh, if, you get, if you get one skid on the ground and the other one comes up, if you get thrust equal to weight and a consistent rolling motion, you're not going to be able to stop it and you're going to go over and land on your side. So that's yeah. what I'm thinking is happening to me right now. I'm thinking, okay, the skid got caught in some heavy snow or, or whatever, and my right skid didn't, and now I, I'm getting ready for a crash. So everything I learned in flight school about dynamic rollover went through my brain in about a hundredth of a second, including thrust equals weight, and I, I threw the cyclic over to the right, and I felt it stop a little bit, and I go, I got more thrust than weight, and I yanked full collective. I'm going, I'm doing an instrument takeoff because now I can't see anything. Oh, and, I, and I looked at, at the VSI and I, I got, I'm, I'm climbing and just, just went straight to the instruments and everything on the instruments looks good. We're getting some airspeed. We're going up. And then I'm thinking. Yeah, but do you have I trees get, around the, you? And yeah, that's right. That yeah. The next thing that goes oh, to my it. brain is there's, I wonder how close those 200 feet foot trees are in front of <laughs> Where are those giant redwoods? <laughs> and, and, the giant sequoias are like, here somewhere. <laughs> holy crap. And finally, all the, all the snow went away and it cleared out. And I'm about 50 feet over the tops of the trees going about 50 knots of forward airspeed. And I'm like, oh, man, we, we lived. And IP <laughs> looked over at me and he goes, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in aviation. Did, did you think he over-torqued it? I don't know. I wasn't looking at the torque meter. I was just trying to keep us alive. <laughs> keep my butt alive meter. <laughs> he, he, he said, what do you think oh, happened? Shit. I said, I think I caught a skid in some chunky ice or something. And yeah. he said, well, well, let's go back and land and check it out. And I go, controls are yours. I am never flying again until I have whiskey at least once. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually he wanted to see what happened so badly as a teaching point for the next guy that was that was going to go through to keep it from happening that he went and landed and sure enough there was this big chunk that had gone into the into this crusty snowbank from the front of the ski on the skids and that's what kind of stopped us but that was yeah, I think that was probably the closest closest of ever crashing and balling up an aircraft and potentially dying you know the the thing with all of that was i saved myself but this one was kind oh, yeah. of like Ooh, you know that that, I, I, that was that was uh, pretty stupid it's like every stupid thing you can do in an aircraft weather-wise everything else i was all put into one and it's like why are we doing this 
I'm We're never not- flying again unless I have whiskey once. <laughs> so I have whiskey at yes, least once. I, yeah. At yeah. least once. <laughs> so he so he took it back and landed it. So is that yeah. what happened? Did it catch a skin? Yeah, is it, it, it okay. did catch us. Catch the front of the ski. Okay, in, into a big uh, bucket of crusty ice. So there was a, there was like this big cutout notch. Oh up, up into this, well up done, into the sir. snow. So it was interesting because he said, oh, "I I want to figure out if this." What we can do is a teaching point, and a couple of weeks later, they had a guy that was uh, don't a CW. Land in the, don't land in the snow at yeah. night. <laughs> he took a guy out that was a W-4, and he was the OH-58 test pilot in the maintenance platoon. And he didn't get NVG qualified when he went through flight school because he'd, he'd been out for 20 years. And so they were doing on-site NVG qualification. And uh, he was going out through the end of that for his PAC check ride. They took him into the same confined area. The exact same thing happened, and he got out of it the exact same way. So they came back in the next day, and they're like, good job, Captain. 58 test pilot did the exact same thing and got out of it the exact same way. So I was like, yeah, good for him, man. (laughs) Yeah. I figured I could sit here and go, man, that, that sounds like a good job. But Sticks being another rotor head goes, yeah, that was good recognizing that. That's that's huge. Because you, your other option is if you hadn't gone around, you'd have basically dug your main rotor in, right, and been done. Yeah, we would have we would have kept rolling to the we left. Continue rolling. Would have, yeah, you would have yeah. landed on the side, and as soon as you got, as soon as those rotor blades got got into the ground, they would have stopped pretty quickly and blown yeah, off, and we would have been stuck out there where it was cold, hoping somebody would come out and find us. <laughs> and, and land in the same crappy conditions you were in <laughs> right <laughs> with even more confined because now there's a I helo know, right? balling up part of that space and <laughs> <laughs> holy smokes and then so rolling to the left i forget sticks was telling me that one of them's bad depending on the direction of your main rotor if if you roll right you know it pushes the rotor head aft if you roll left it pushes the rotor head forward and you get to meet it is that the or do, or do i have it backwards it has to do more with more with the torque from the direction it's going. Okay. And you got more torque if if you're rolling to the to the left, you're probably going to roll over a little bit more quickly. But I had more thrust, so it may have stopped the. Yeah. So no, what I'm asking, I guess, is so quickly. if you're sitting in the cockpit and you look up at your rotors, is it going clockwise or counterclockwise? It's going uh, counterclockwise. Okay. And so if you go to the left. It's going to pull the main. It, it, it's going to try and push the main rotor head aft when that left Re- wing digs in. Repeat. Right? I, I know. I'm trying to do right public now. math here, folks. It's more the tail rotor. You're it's more the tail rotor. Shit right out of me. <laughs> it's more the it's more the tail rotor that counteracts the way that it's going. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. Don't fly helicopters, and you don't have to worry about this crap, people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People do. Some uh, of that aerodynamic do. knowledge is forty years old, so it's right? a little uh, crusty. And they're going, "Oh yeah, what was that?" Oh, they terrify that me. That stick sent me a video of all these dynamic. What'd you call it? Dynamic rollover. Roll yeah. Yes, yeah. he sent me a video of that. I think he sent it to both. Oh of yeah, he did, he and it was terrifying to, to watch. Me. <laughs> it scares the living shit out of me. What yeah, I've like, learned about here, why would anybody ever do this? Here's the main point I've learned over my years about helicopter aerodynamics: the more I learn, the less I know, the more terrifying it is. Those things will kill you six ways to Sunday. <laughs> 
before you know i mean if yeah, yeah you can you can, you lose, can really you can run out yourself. of thrust yeah you can run out of thrust with the tail rotor you run out of left pedal and all of a sudden you're you're spinning to the right and uh, they say the emergency procedures to to roll the throttle off and do a hovering auto rotation because that'll stop the torque. Well, that's to what I would fly, do, but you know, or to try and wanna... fly out of it. And the only time I ever got into it was over that previously mentioned ten thousand gallon Blivita JP four, and uh, our our POL guys hadn't placed the landing ports for refueling in the right direction, and there's a bad deal if. If the wind's coming over a certain direction over the main rotor system, it'll help stall the tail rotor a little more quickly. And I think I spun around about three times. And fortunately, it weather veined again because I'm thinking, I, I, I can't do the hovering auto rotation over 10,000 gallon blivet of JP4 because that, that probably sets the earth on fire, me included, with a big boom. Yeah, it's like crossing the streams, <laughs> right? I, 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 lucked, I lucked out. I lucked out and got weather veined again with another gust. And remember just sitting there at a 50 foot hover with a Cobra in line behind me, getting ready to refuel. And they're like, captain, that was really cool. We didn't have our video cameras out. Can you do that again? That we want to, we no. want to see that. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going back over and parking in my uh, bivouac site and let one of my warrant officers, that's like a real highly trained pilot to come over and fill up with gas. No, another potential title, right? That probably sets the earth on fire. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, re, repeat tease me earlier, and he said there's a repeat theme here. Sorry, not repeat. There's a reoccurring theme here about wildlife. Yes. So, can can you expand on that? Yeah. Air cavalry, air cavalry always hey, helps out. I'll tell you what. Me. I'll tell they you were, what. We're getting at the point. Where, we're we're uh, geez, look at this. We're an hour in. Can what? you believe it? Holy, it looks like no. 10 minutes ago we started. We're, so what I'd like to do is a real quick thanks to uh, Robin's Burn Brain Designs. And uh, we'll be back in about a minute and we'll get into the wildlife stories. Here at So There I Was, we're proud to welcome as a sponsor, Robin's Bird Brain Designs. Looking for a unique and thoughtful gift? Well, look no further. At robinsbirdbraindesigns.com, they specialize in custom slate coasters that are sure to impress. Imagine having a set of coasters personalized with your squadron logo and call sign, or even your aircraft tail number and instruments. Whether it's for your aviation enthusiast friends or a special someone in your life, their custom coasters are the perfect way to show that you've put some thought into getting that something special for someone truly special. But it doesn't stop there. They can also create coasters with any organization logo and printing that you desire. From military units or sports teams, they've got you covered. Their high-quality coasters are made from durable slate, ensuring they'll stand the test of time. So why settle for ordinary gifts when you can give something extraordinary? Visit robinsbirdbraindesigns.com today and let them help you create custom gifts that show just how much you care. Because when it comes to thoughtful presents, they've got your back. Oh, that's awesome. And I will real quickly mention that Robin's Bird Brain Designs has new lower prices on the coasters this year. They got some new laser printers and they are... Those are really cool. Uh, able to do those much faster. Yeah. So get your squadron logo or or whatever other organization organization that you have. Get them on there and uh, and you'll be good to go. So all right. So crazy animals, uh, wildlife, animals. Wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my favorite one. It involved a search party, 
And the previous night, there was a Cobra that went out on a, a night training mission. And it was all unaided, no NVGs. And they had to navigate and find a couple of couple of areas on, on their 1 over 50,000 map. And so it was all time distance heading. Okay, we're going we're gonna to fly a certain, certain time, certain distance, certain knots, and hopefully we find the place. And I think they had set a 200-foot altitude to do all this. And at some point, about 45 minutes into their flight, they happened to run into the top of a tree. Wow. And they kept flying, but it knocked off the TSU, which is a telescopic sight unit. Oh, okay. Um, which is which is what's used by the designated gunner to track the to thermal sight to track the tow missiles weapon system. And it's pretty expensive. I, mean, I think it was a hundred thousand okay. dollar piece of equipment way back when. Hey, I'm and, sorry to um, interrupt. What kind of airplane was this? This was a Cobra. Cobra. So okay. It was right. it was our Cobra platoon had been out uh, okay. doing some training. Okay. And I found out about it. I, I came in the next morning, and troop commander was like, "Chris, I need you to take out maybe three of your aircraft. Go find out what the time distance heading quotients were for their training mission last night. See if there's any way you can ha- go out find a needle in a haystack. Maybe you can find this broken tree because." Hopefully it was just a strange tree that was 50 feet taller than all the other ones around it. And they snapped snapped the top off. Because that's their bullshit story. (laughs) If we find that, then maybe we can find the the TSU. And we won't have to claim it as a Class C mishap. So so off we go. And I, I was out flying with one of my warrant officers. And sure enough, about 45 minutes in, we saw the top of a tree it was like 90 degrees bent over, snapped over. And we're like, wow, holy crap, I, maybe, maybe we found it. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's the right time. It's the right location according to where they think that they hit it. And we started looking around, and there, there was a big confined area cut out probably within 50 meters or so where we thought this TSU might have landed if it got knocked off and kept going straight. Let's be heroes. Let's land in the confined area. Let's go walk around a little bit, see if we can find the TSU. So we we land in the confined area, fairly close to, to the one side of the trees that this thing's at, that we think. Put everything down to flight idle. We friction all the controls down. Because, you know, it was like 20 below out, and we didn't want to stay out a whole long time, and we didn't want to shut the aircraft down and then have it not start back up because it was frozen <laughs> or whatever. So so we go, I think we got about, I think we got about 10 minutes we can go walk around before we got to worry about running out of fuel to get back to, to the main camp. And um, so off we go, and we start wandering around. We, we find Wait, wait, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got to interrupt. Did you shut down completely, or did no, somebody stay no. No, we put it. We put it at flight idle. Okay. So, so the aircraft's still running at idle. We got the we got the collective and the cyclic friction to where they won't move, and both of us get out and we go in and we, okay. we find the tree. Hold, hold on. The so there's a helicopter like, going. Well, with well, the bl- I know. There's a helicopter. I'm doing the same thing you're doing, Reepy. So there's a helicopter with a rotor yeah. spinning, and nobody's in it. Nobody's in it. Oh, she's gone. <laughs> 
and because we because we don't we we don't want it to be cold when we get back after we find this thing. Of course right? we don't. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Why would what, you? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what, what? So so we go in and we find the tree and we we. we we start walking down. We slid apart about 30 feet from each other, and we're walking down. And we kept going, looking around, and we're like, shit, we can't find it. But we know where it's at now. We'll, we'll send the Blues Platoon of Infantry guys out here and let them freeze their butts off and walk around and, and, and see if they can find it. So we walk back out, and as soon as we get to the edge of the, of the tree line, we look out and there's this big bull moose, 60 inch rack between us and our aircraft. We're like, <laughs> well, that was freaking stupid. What are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and, How's that uh, working out for you, smart guys? <laughs> and, uh, so we're like, well, we don't, we don't have a whole time left before running out of gas, you know? And so I said, well, let's just go around to the other side of the confined area around the tree line. Mr. Moose, is, as long as he doesn't see us, he's not going to hear us because of the sound of the aircraft. So we walked all the way around and then walked to the aircraft. I, I, was in the, I was in the right seat, and I climbed over all the controls first. The other guy got in. We buckled in, and I said, what do you think? Let's, should, should we just like kind of roll the throttle up normal like we normally do, or do we risk over-torquing it by cranking it up and getting the hell out of here? And he said, well, let's, let's just roll it up nice and easy. And he goes, I'll, he goes, I'll fly. You're on the right side. You keep, you keep looking at the, at the bull, and if he starts moving toward us, just yell out, yell out to me to crank it. I'm like, all right. So we're gradually rolling it up, rolling it up. And I think we're about halfway up to full uh, air, full throttle. And this thing looks, and I don't know if he looked at me, you know, he's, he's like, oh, I'm going to get these guys. And it starts hauling ass toward us. And no. we go, out of here, now. <laughs> he, he rolled the rest of it and cranked everything he had. And I, I, we had to have over torqued it. And I think you know we probably missed it by a hundred feet. It seemed a lot closer than that. But was he was his head down charging at you yeah, guys? Yeah, he was, yeah, he 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 did not want us to to be Holy found. shit! Flying so like, squirrel almost hits moose. Yes, that was Bullwinkle. That was Bullwinkle, yeah. by the way. That was from yeah. that was from Sticks. He said yeah, that bull, was definitely Bullwinkle, and he was Bullwinkle yeah. in the time. He was he was angry yeah. at flying squirrel. <laughs> Yeah, that was. <laughs> yes, but we all we all made it back and lived to tell about it. Yeah. Hey, rookie, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. That's know. not a rabbit. Ooh, yeah. wrong hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that was, see what would MacGyver do now? You know, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, sticks is sticks is. Yeah, I can see the mishap report now. Well, you see, we got out of the helicopter and then there was this moose. <laughs> But he wasn't there when we got out. <laughs> he came out of nowhere. I don't know. Repeat. Why? Why don't we have stories like this? Why don't we have a moose? Well, moose we had we, Luke. Luke killed a deer on the runway. I okay, remember that. You're right. But, you know. You're right. And yes, and if you go look at, I think that was show three or four. He actually still has the photo, or he still has the plaque with the yeah. photo of the airplane. Leaning over on its side, and the rack mounted to that plaque. 
which had, yes. had, I didn't realize he had it. That was awesome. So, yeah, one of our well, compadres hit a deer on the runway, and it took the outrigger off his Harrier. But that that deer did not survive. Looks like looks like Bullwinkle survived this one. And we've had a number of uh, wildlife deaths on this podcast. So <laughs> so good on you for not killing that yeah, one. No, nobody died, fortunately, because it most likely would have been us. Yeah. Moose, Moose almost died that night. That, there's your logbook yeah. entry. But so. but you had you had to uh, consider large game in, in Alaska. your exercises because of where you were right. Yeah, absolutely. Because so, so, I got I'm looking at it. You had some bear game. issues. Large game item. Gar, yeah, large we game had animals um, were item of concern. Yeah. for all your so, MTXs. You know, you you we talk about the large game and. The fish and game group up in Alaska are great at taking care of the wildlife. They're like, you can't abuse them. You know, you be- you better make sure and have all your permits if you're hunting. You go out and screw around with our wildlife, and then you're going to jail. And yeah. we used to help. We used to help them tagging grizzlies. What? So the the Hueys, which I wasn't flying, but they'd go out and uh, they'd take a fish and game guy. And he'd stand on the skid with a special harness and he'd have his uh, tranquilizer dart gun and off they'd go looking for grizzlies that they thought that they had a close idea where there was going to be. And we see, you know, every time you flew, you'd see a hundred moose. You very rarely saw grizzlies, you know, one, one every once in a while. They're pretty shy creatures and they can be, my, yeah. my understanding, but yeah, but, but they can be mean and yeah. come after you, especially if they got one of their little critters with them, they, they can get annoyed. But yeah. so they, <laughs> we heard about it when, when the crew came back in, they were still shaking their heads and they, and they were shaking because they went out and they got low and slow because they, they'd get down at like 20 knots and they'd get real low to where the tranquilizer dart would go in as far as needed and, and knock the thing out so they could land. And then the fish and game guide go out, tag it and get back in the aircraft and come back. So on this one particular one, they got low and slow. They, the guy shot it with the dart and it didn't knock the thing down. And he got pretty pissed off and got up on his back paws high enough. These things were, these things were huge. They'd they'd be up 15 feet between the bottom paws and their top paws. And when the, when the aircraft flew by, it hit the skids like no boom and made the aircraft go this and and now you got a fishing game guy laying out almost horizontal looking at this bear face to face they're going i tried to shoot me huh <laughs> so they went around and i guess they 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 shot it one more time a little bit more carefully and wait waited till it was down for 10 minutes before they they landed and then got it tagged Ugh. and and uh, that that one had some notes attached to it so file on the on the tag number that almost knocked a huey out of the sky yeah, because, you know, like King Kong, you know, it's just swatting at airplanes. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, no, we're not going to do that today. No, 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 no. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Yes, we had, we had wow. another one. We had another one if you got time. That yeah. We were, wow, uh, let, let it rip, man. We, we were starting a two-week field exercise, and we had it at a place called Fort Greeley, and so – in Alaska, yeah. there's Elmendorf Air Force Base and Fort Richardson that are in Anchorage. You got Ielson and Fort Wainwright that are up in Fairbanks. 
And then about 100 miles east-southeast from Wainwright is Fort Greeley, which is where all the cold weather training courses are and where most of the most of the training areas are, especially during the cold weather season. So we all had our area picked out and we said, all right, let's get, let's get some good training done. Let's do an area recon to go look for the bad guys, make sure our area is all clear. And uh, then we can set down our aircraft and hook up our tents with our, with our Yukon stoves and, and stay warm. And we, we, we got out there. I, I was in the lead OH-58, and I had a I had a Cobra with me, and we got right to where my tent was supposed to be. And there's this big buffalo that's standing motionless, and there are two bison herds up in Alaska. There's one that's I think it was like 20, 30 miles south of Fort Greeley, and then there's another one about a hundred miles north. And somehow this one had either gotten lost or he decided he was gonna he was gonna go out for a while and be on his own and this thing, this thing standing there and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, we can't, we can't land and set up camp with this big freaking animal. And uh, so I called fishing game on, uh, we had a private radio frequency with them and told them what was going on and asked for permission to hover over the top of this Buffalo and just to make some racket and see if we can get them to move. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. You know, don't piss it off too much, but you know, <laughs> if, you, if you want to get it to move, that's okay with us. So I hovered over the top of it, didn't move, didn't blink, didn't do anything. And I'm like, I wonder if this thing died and rigor mortis has set in where it's just not moving. But so I called the Cobra and I go, Hey, you're three times heavier and three times louder. You hover over the top of it. Nothing. I said, do like a gun run down on it where you pull up at the bottom and it makes all kinds of racket. Didn't do anything. I'm like, all right, this thing's dead. It's fig. You know, this ain't gonna it's end not well. Gonna bo- it's not, it's not going to bother us. So, not going to end well. No. So it actually, it actually did. We, we just said, well, we, we got to do this FTX. Where else are we going to go? We'll move over a little bit. And we did. And three days later, we woke up in the morning and it was gone. No idea where it went. But it, it sat in that same place, stood in the same place without moving. It didn't lay down, didn't do nothing other than stand there. And then wow. he left. Wow! So tired. Way, way less scary, than, <laughs> way less scary than a bull moose sticking its nose into the GP meeting, well, oh. yeah, or, or a bear trying to swatch you out of the sky. But you know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. hey, Sticks has a real quick question. What, what was the mission of the OH fifty eight, and did you have any defensive weapons or ordnance? Or I, I had a, a thirty eight special revolver strapped to your hip. Okay, strapped to my hip. That was it on the yeah. OH fifty eights. The the Cobras had all, all the weapons. Yeah. So we'd go out and, and they'd, they'd fly with us. We'd usually have a Cobra and either one or two ice 58s, but the main mission was air cavalry type tactics. So either area recons or zone reconnaissance or a point reconnaissance where you're going out to a screen line where you're expecting the enemy to come up and, and you're sitting there on, on a defensive line looking for the bad guys coming, coming North or whatever they were direction they were coming from and you it's we had we had missions where we'd go out and we'd be on one of these lines for eight hours just hovering you know and you're, you're passing did, it back and forth with the other pilot i'm I'm tired of hovering man did you did you have like a, like a some kind of sensor big, on top big globe on top right that, yeah that was the oh 58d okay i flew 
we had 10 OH58s, nine of them were A models, and I had a Charlie model. Only difference on the Charlie model is you had 200 more pounds of max gross weight, and it had a VOR and a glide slope. All the, all the A models only had an NDB for navigational purposes and yeah. listening to listening to the yes. radio while, tunes while you were out flying around. But the the D model came in after I had, right when I was getting out, I think in about 87, that came in. I know I'm getting old when when OH-58 or aircraft type models that I hadn't flown yet are now totally out of the service. But um, That's weird, right? But yeah, that one, that one had all the, had all the different FLIR and other types of things where you could pull, you could hover up just enough out of the trees to where that big bulb would look out. And then you'd look right. at it on a scope and you could pass it off to a Cobra or an Apache at that point okay. to do its business. But we, we had to pull up and use our own eyes for, for gazing around for the bad guys. Okay. okay. And FLIR being forward-looking infrared. Infrared so radar. It was night vision. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Okay. Hey, can, then, can, we just, can we just cover a couple other of acronyms that you threw out that I don't think yeah. we – Hopefully if I threw T- them out, I knew. TFU. TFU. TSU. Yeah, Tango Sierra. That was the telescopic sight unit. That was on the front of the Cobra, which it was sort of the, laser guided Cobra, missiles. And, yeah, and the, and the Cobra's the it had two pilots, but the guy in the front seat was the designated gunner, and they would yeah. use the TSU to be able to to look out. And when they fired a a tow missile, which was an anti tank round for the most part, but it was all guided with a with a wire cable all the way till it till it hit its it's like a, tele- it was like so a guys, telephone yes, cord. Yeah. It was, <laughs> They'd look yeah. into this deal and they'd, they'd push buttons to keep it going and keep it centered on whatever it was. And Isn't that crazy? Um, if, if you were off to the side and they fired one, you could you could see the cable. And then when it ended up hitting whatever, it had, it had release and you'd see it come down. So we other mission, we, we also did missions where we'd, we'd work with the Air Force, especially the A-10s, and do joint air attack training missions where we'd be out with Cobras and then we'd get artillery that would come in. And A-10s. One time I got to bring in an F-15 and drop some F-15 ammo into the impact area, which was very cool. It had just gotten on a mission from chasing a bear bomber back into Russian airspace. Oh, nice. And he called in with his call sign, and I go, Eagle 1-5? Who the heck's I've never even heard Eagle. And I'm looking on my kneeboard. I go, F-15? And I go, yeah, what do you, what do you want? We want to play with you. We got some stuff to drop. We just got authorized. I'm like, yeah, come on in. Nice. <laughs> so, so that was kind of, those were really fun when you know, dropping, you know, A-10s would come in and tear everything up and artillery would come in either behind it or ahead of it. So that that was the funnest missions we'd do because you were actually blowing up stuff. Were you, were you calling in, could you call in uh, artillery? Yep. You guys? Yeah, as an air mission commander. And so we did it all, nice. or sometimes, sometimes we'd get an aerial observer that we would train from one of the artillery units and there was there was one artillery battery at fort wainwright and uh, their xo was one of my west point classmates and really good buddy and so i i'd let his guys come over whenever we could and and give his guys training and so that was pretty fun yeah do a dog and pony show for the generals a couple times that was was kind of fun so And I got one last thing. So uh, we we've got you said Class C mishap. So you were trying to keep a that 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 piece of equipment, right. the T S U, that came off that Cobra. 
was a hundred thousand dollars. And so we talked about this before, but the difference between a class A, B, C mishap is dollar, dollar, dollar or amount or injury or, or life, like a class A yeah. would be life. So I think the, they went down. The, I went. They went down to class E. I think, but I think class C was where a commander could start having it affect his career. That's all we had in our community was A, B, and C, and then hazard report after that. So if a lieutenant got hurt, that was a hazard report. If <laughs> if Captain if it was got under a class C, you could keep it under a hundred thousand dollars. It was it was not even a class C, so the commander wouldn't have to report it, right? Which is what I think happened when uh, when we ended up with a couple of Harriers that were hail damaged. Like, yeah. yeah, the yeah, canopies we were consumables, <laughs> <laughs> like tires and brake rotors and canopies. You yeah. know, little stuff like that. Yeah. Man. Well, this has been fantastic, Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, for I had a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. I wasn't uh, sure how this was 20, going. That was fun. Yeah. Seems like it was five minutes. minutes. Oh, my, I know, right? I know. Oh Where did God. this go? Well, unfortunately, we have to land this plane. I, my company says I have to go to work tomorrow. They're not going to pay me <laughs> the cheap people that they are. Oh, unbelievable. Bastard. Yeah. Had a bunch of people listening. Thank tonight you live so thanks for joining us live we appreciate the input the comments the questions those are great you can always listen on or watch us when we record i try to put the word out on facebook when we're going to do it and then we get rumble and youtube and facebook.com and all that good stuff but we we need to to get some thank yous out here i think first and foremost thank you chris thank you for your service thank you for your sacrifice you and your family putting up with yeah, thanks uh, guys thank you for your yeah. service as well it was a privilege thanks. Yes, and, and it really was. And thank you because I got a core workout. <laughs> I really did. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and today's the 13th, but let's say thank you because, first of all, we had a 248th United States Marine Corps birthday last Friday. Hoorah, Semper Fi. Do or die. Chase. Chase Cole, Chase happy Cole. birthday, Marine. Thank you for being on here with us, and thank you for managing our Facebook page and being our number one fan. That's and huge. And hey, hold on. While you're mentioning Chase Cole, he wrote, and I sent it to you, Fig. I don't know if you saw it or not yet. He wrote a, I, I don't have it in front of me, and I'm, I meant to do it. Go look at our Facebook group. So there are facebook.com slash so there I was dot us. Find our group. He wrote a birthday message for all Marines. And I haven't, I haven't seen that. I, I sent you the link. It's how, and he even put a line in there about Chesty taking off faster than fig spit gristle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, it I'm is creative and outstanding right. like you thank wouldn't you, believe. So yeah, thank you, Chase. That was, that was, I was laughing my ass off reading that. So very well done, sir. Yeah. All about, uh, hey, as, 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 as a matter moments. of fact, on the Marine Corps birthday, I was in South Dakota, as you know, as, you know, offline. We, I was on a bird hunt, had a Marine Corps birthday with another Marine, Sinbad, also a previous guest. And I had to tell to the table, he forced me to tell that table about the gristle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the gristle spit. <laughs> at least he didn't make you repeat it, did he? <laughs> no, I only had to tell it one time. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean he didn't he didn't he didn't make you repeat, well, repeat the act. No, what brought it yeah. up was we ended up we were having steaks. We're in yeah. South Dakota, yeah. big beef country, and had a lot of gristle on my plate and he goes, You gotta tell him this story and I'm like, Nah, I don't wanna tell it and he started yeah. telling it and the next thing you know I gotta finish because he's got it all dicked up. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. So all right. 
We also need to thank none other than Dave Hamilton, our mentor and and supporter who helped us get this up and underway. Thank you, Dave Hamilton. He's over at BackbeatMedia.com online, handles all the advertising for this show and many others. If you have a show you need advertising, reach out to BackbeatMedia.com, and they may be able to help you out as well. Hit a few acronyms here, Fig. What What do you do if we heard an acronym we didn't ask about? Well, you can email us at... Fig, so there I was. Repeat at so there I was, or sticks at so there I was. Slash us dot us dot us. Yeah. If if you really want a good answer, email sticks. Sticks at so there I was dot us. He's got the answers. He's got the answers. (laughs) Absolutely, and got some cool merchandise up there, including coming into the winter season. Got our hoodie up and running. I got one i love it it's man is it warm too it is a nice it's a nice hoodie i'm enjoying it i saw your i have a hoodie envy yeah i saw your hoodie i, I have a hoodie envy yeah i hear you <laughs> <laughs> and we got uh let's see what else oh give give us a rating please if you could get on we're we're we've gained about uh seven or eight ratings this week since we put up so there i was that us slash rate hey yeah. and just share the show share, share it the show share it to your friends Share, so, share the show. And here's oh. a way you can share it, folks. When when I put up an announcement about a show on our Facebook group or the Facebook page, there's two separate ones for So There I Was, you, there's actually a little share button at the bottom of that. You can post that to your page to tell your friends about it. We've had a couple of those get posted. I'd, I'd like to see more people sharing it personally to their page if they aren't too embarrassed to be <laughs> associated with us. <laughs> Just saying, you know. You know. We get it. If you're too embarrassed to put our show up on your personal page, you know, we, we know. I we understand. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I get it. Well, oh, I, <laughs> I understand not wanting to be associated with us, but that's a whole nother, you know, story there. So, hey, Fig, look at that picture behind me. Uh, if you're looking online, I just changed that up, you know. See, see that you is an awesome picture of a Harrier. I bet you that was taken by Brad. That was Brad Silcott picture, wasn't it? BDS Aviation Photography. Yep, over at BDS.com. Absolutely. Brad, that's an awesome picture. He lets that's us a, use that. Hey, lower your head for a second. Lower your head. Move it. Move your head slightly no, to your I'll left. Dude, that okay. That's got, that is, a, let's see. Oh, that's got a radar and a flitter on the front of it. That's shit hot. Yeah. Nice. So nice that's picture, a night attack, ra- night attack radar jet there. So that's that's um, a super that's yeah. a super Harrier two plus or whatever we call, they call it now or what? <gasps> yeah. And then uh, for those still watching, I, I get it. This is an audio show most of the time, folks. I totally get it. For those still watching, there are some Harriers Whoa. in the break. In the break, he took that too. Nice. He's got some amazing, amazing uh, photos. Brad does bdsaviationphotography.com. Then uh, there's those fine folks making that music for us. That's the F-16 pilots that make the Air Force sound good. The Dos Gringos. Awesome music. Both of them. I Dos never gringos. get tired of listening to it. Yep. As a matter of fact, I keep pushing it on everybody I meet. You want to have a fun? Right. Listen to the Dos Gringos. It's fun yep. music. I play it pre-flight, and guys love it. Find them on Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, and anywhere you get your music, they should be there. As well as those are the same locations, you can find us and find our show. So, 
I don't know, Fig. Until next week, do you have any good av- aviation advice for uh, for our listeners? Well, in honor of our guest, I guess, I guess we should say, uh, don't sit on the collector. Don't do it. It's hard for me to say that. Don't sit on the collector. <laughs> I, I love you, Chris. Don't sit on the collector. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic Man, it's over It's what? He said it's over Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Army training, sir! Army training, sir! <laughs> That's for you. That's for you, Chris. That's for you, Chris. Great movie. <laughs> We're out. Great movie. Man, that was, that was fun. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed that.